Find your way to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2 is where you ought to be as we get back to this, well, just incredibly fitting letter from the Apostle Paul to the people of Galatia, but by the Spirit's work now to us. Open now the hearts of your people, God. Give us eyes to see, hearts to treasure your truth, to deeply found our faith upon Christ and Christ alone. So give us what we need now, we pray in Jesus. Amen. So it's been a month. Let me just remind you where we've been. As Paul begins his letter to the Galatians, he is he's anxious to demonstrate to them that the gospel he has preached is not man's gospel. In chapter 1, verse 11, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because his opponents have accused him of being a second-rate preacher with a second-hand message. Oh, Paul's good at preaching Christ and forgiveness and all that, they say. But, you know, he's, he's left some things out. Not only must you believe in Christ, but you must also keep uh, the whole of the Old Testament law. You must, you must be circumcised and you must uh, obey those Old Testament commands. Because really, that's the only way for you to be pleasing to God. And, well, Paul's left that part out. So at the heart of their accusation is this premise that Paul got his gospel from others and somewhere along the lines he got it wrong. Paul's response is to make clear he didn't get this gospel from anybody. Not even from the other apostles. And instead, he was set apart and called directly by Christ to proclaim the gospel of free grace through faith alone. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 13, he reminds them of the grace of God that took him from being a fierce persecutor of the Christian faith to a faithful proclaimer of Christ by grace alone through faith in Him for the salvation of all who believe. And so just to get that background, let me begin reading in verse 13. For you have heard of my former... This is verse chapter 1. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Though when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In this that I write to you, before God I do not lie. Then I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And now with that background, 
let's pick up our passage today because really he's continuing along the same lines. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers who secretly, who were secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them who did, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, What they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I was entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter in his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. That's a lot. But here's what I want you to see. Because the Gospel brings us to salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. We cannot let anything subvert that gospel by adding something to it. Not even obedience to the law. So don't give in to anyone who would drag you back under the Old Testament law. Salvation is by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. And dear church, you must never lose hold of that. So let's dig in. There's a lot of things we're going to have to look at over the next several weeks here. Let's follow Paul's argument. He starts off in verses 1, 2, and 3 with what I'm really going to call a test case. A test case. Is grace through faith alone enough? Or is it not? Now a little background will help us to track what Paul is saying here. So just stay with me. Verse 1 says that Fourteen years later, that is fourteen years after Paul's original conversion, so maybe twelve years after that first visit to Jerusalem, he returned to Jerusalem again. So it's been been a while. All this time, he's been out there preaching the gospel of grace alone to the Gentiles. And Gentiles, remember, just means non-Jews. He's not requiring them to become Jewish. He's not requiring them to be circumcised as the Old Testament commanded or to keep the Old Testament law as if they were Jews. And the the question that has come up is this. Was he wrong to do that? Now, Paul knows that he's not wrong. In fact, he's sure of it. He got his message directly from Christ himself. So don't misread this as if Paul is coming to Jerusalem out of fear that somehow he may have gotten the message wrong. No, Paul is confident about the gospel, but his concern is that there not be any dissension between him and the rest of the apostles in Jerusalem over the gospel and how it is to be preached and to whom it may be preached. That's what he means when he says in verse 2, I want to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. 
I mean, can you imagine the chaos and the trouble that it would have caused if Paul was saying one thing and the apostles of Jerusalem were saying another? I mean, what a hindrance that would be to the reception of the gospel among, among really anybody. It would be like throwing a bunch of gravel under the feet of your own track team uh, just before the race got started. It, it would make everyone stumble. It would, it would trip up everybody. And so Paul says... I went down to meet with these men to make sure that we're all running for the same team. Listen, when there is disagreement about the heart of the gospel, that does nothing but create confusion within the church and stumbling among those who would hopefully hear and receive that gospel. That's, that's why this matters. Uh, all this talk about Paul's travels, may say, that was so long ago, what does that have to do with me? Well, It has to do with you because you depend upon the freedom of that gospel for your own uh, assurance of salvation. And so Paul has had to run all the way back to Jerusalem after 14 years to clear this thing up. Well, okay, then where's Paul been all this time? Well, the short answer is Syria. Specifically, the city of Antioch. If you glance back at chapter 1, verse 21... I just read that after Paul's first visit to Jerusalem, when he left there, he returned to the region, it says, of Syria and Cilicia. If you don't know where those are, just look in the back of your Bible. There's maps there. But Cilicia, that's actually where Paul's hometown of Tarsus is located. So initially, he just goes home for a bit. But eventually, things begin to happen down in Antioch. That upset a lot of people like that. No, Uh, Things begin to happen down in Antioch that drew him to that city. Uh, If you turn with me to Acts chapter 11, let's just pick up the historical record there. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen... Stop. Isn't this interesting? In God's providence, you remember that persecution? Who was was instrumental in that big persecution of the church? (laughs) Paul himself, before his conversion. So... As people were being scattered from the very persecution Paul was part of, um, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. There's our city. Speaking the Word of God at first to no one but the Jews. Initially, they thought this is a Jewish message for Jewish people. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Now, that probably initially means Greek-speaking Jews, but very quickly it also meant to the Gentiles themselves also preaching to them the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who, uh, who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came down to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God taking place, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And remember, that's, that's actually Paul. That's his other name. And when they had found him, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Gentiles are being converted in large numbers. And Barnabas, who has been sent there to oversee the training of them, needs help. And so he goes and finds Paul, who is in not too far distant Tarsus, and recruits him to come help. 
By the way, don't you love Barnabas? Just take note, every time you see Barnabas in Scripture, he's encouraging someone in the faith. Humanly, and his name even means son of encouragement. That's actually his nickname. His name was Joseph. But the son of encouragement. Humanly speaking, he's the one God will use to get Paul started in this gospel ministry to the Gentiles. They're friends ever since Paul's conversion. He knew about Paul's calling that Jesus had given him. And when there was a need, he went and found him and brought him to Antioch. And so Paul and Barnabas have began preaching the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone to the Gentiles, inviting them to come by faith. That's what's provoked this question. Is that right? Can just anyone have their sins forgiven by trusting in Christ or do you have to come to the door of Judaism first? Do the other apostles in Jerusalem, do they agree with this? Or has somehow Paul gone off the rails by preaching so freely and inviting Gentiles to Christ with no other requirement than that they trust in Him alone? And while they're wrestling with that and feeling some pushback from some, an opportunity opens up for them to go to Jerusalem and find out. Picking up in verse 27 of chapter 11 Acts. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief, a relief offering to the brothers living in Judea where the famine was really severe. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul or Paul. So Paul and Barnabas are sent to Jerusalem in response to this revelation of a coming famine. That's the trip Paul is actually talking about here in Galatians 2. Now, if you know the book of Acts, there will be another trip to Jerusalem uh, later to discuss these same issues with a larger group. That's Acts 15, uh, called the Jerusalem Council. But, But this is a different trip. This is an earlier trip. That trip, Acts 15, will be very public. It will include a meeting of pretty much everyone who is anyone in the Christian faith at the time. So that Acts 15, verse 6 says, you know, all the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. It was a big meeting. This is a much smaller meeting. And notice chapter 2, verse 2 of Galatians says that it is a private meeting. Just a few. In fact, verse 9 of Galatians 2 says it's just going to be three of the apostles. There's going to be Peter or Cephas. It's going to be James, the brother of Jesus. And there's going to be John, the big three, uh, we can call them. And notice again, they're there. Why is Paul there? He's there because of a revelation uh, that fits Agabus coming and having this revelation of a coming famine. So, get the picture in mind. Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem to carry this relief offering. And while they are there, they have this private meeting with the big three. Why? Paul tells us, so I could set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. And again, he's not doing that to seek their permission, but to get a confirmation that they're all on the same team, preaching the same gospel. But this is a very, very important moment in the early life of the church because it will confirm that the gospel may be preached freely. It will answer the question, is it by grace alone through faith in Christ or are works of the law 
necessary for salvation. And so Paul meets with these whom he says are influential. That just means they're the recognized leadership. The word itself pictures uh, someone who has a good reputation before others. They're, they're respected and acknowledged as leaders. And remember, Paul and these men don't really know each other very well yet. He met Peter on that first visit, and, and, and James as well, but first of all, he was only there 15 days, and it was over a decade ago now. They had some good fellowship, but, but they're still largely strangers to one another. So now Paul, more than a decade later, gathers with these men to lay out the gospel he's been preaching among the Gentiles, hoping that they're going to say, yeah, yeah, that's right. We're all in agreement here. That's the gospel. But then he does one more thing. And I love this. Paul is always, I just love watching him work. He takes along and introduces to them, verse 3 says, Titus. Now why Titus? Do you remember him? If you're in the men's uh, Saturday men's breakfast, we know Titus because we're reading the book. Paul will eventually um, uh, write to young Titus. But why does he take Titus with him? Remember, Titus himself is a Greek. He is a Gentile. He is not Jewish. He's never been circumcised with the covenant sign of the Old Testament that Paul's opponents insist is so very important. And yet Titus has become a Christian. Not only has he become a Christian, Paul himself led Titus to faith in Christ, according to Titus 1.4, and Paul has been now discipling him in ministry. Uh, Titus is serving alongside Paul and Barnabas, helping them proclaim the gospel. So, so, so surely if circumcision is necessary for someone to be a Christian and serve Christ, well then Titus is going to have to be circumcised. So why does Paul take Titus? I agree with Martin Luther. He brought Titus as a test case. Will Peter and James and John, these recognized leaders of the Jerusalem church, look at this Gentile and say, Titus must be circumcised? Or will they open their arms and receive him freely as a brother in Christ through faith alone? Verse 3 gives the answer. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised even though he was a Greek, a Gentile. Score one for the Apostle Paul in the Gospel. right? Score one for the freedom of grace through faith alone. Since salvation is by grace alone through faith in Christ, not by works of the law, Titus is accepted. And by the way, Christian, so are you. If you come to Christ by faith in what He has done, you are in You are His. You are accepted. There's nothing else you must add to that but to trust in Him. But that leads to the next thing, and that is the danger the church was facing. And that is the danger of those who subvert the Gospel by trying to enslave us back to Old Testament law. Verse 4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul is ticked. You may not have noticed that in this section, but have you ever gotten a text or an email from somebody who's really upset 
And the sentences are all jumbled in the way they write. Paul's Greek here is a bit of a mangled mess all the way down to verse 10. Just one incomplete thought after another, fragmentary sentences that start this way and end up going that way. The first time I read this in the original, I thought, good gracious, Paul, what are you even trying to say? And then I tried to outline it so I could, you know, I'm like, I I must be stupid. Then I went to the experts and they're stupid too, I guess, because none of us could. Paul is angry and because he's angry... um, He's angry that the law-centered focus of these men will subvert the gospel of grace and keep Gentiles like me out of the kingdom. And so notice how he describes these men. They're not just misguided believers who've fallen into error, he says. He says they are false believers. They come in on the pretense of faith in Christ, but their real goal is slavery to the law. Paul says they are sham Christians, not true believers. Now, that's a fierce judgment. But to step away from the Gospel and try to bind people back to legalism, according to Paul, is to subvert the Christian faith. And so these men are subverting the Gospel by adding to it. And in doing that, they have even subverted their their own Christian faith. But they claim to know Jesus, but their faith is fixed on Jesus plus. Jesus plus the law. Jesus plus circumcision. And any time you add anything else to the gospel as necessary for your standing with God, you lose the gospel. Listen to me, please. Everyone here needs to think about this. What are you trusting in for your assurance before God? Is it, is it Christ alone by faith and His saving death and resurrection? Are, are, you, are you resting fully in His finished work on the cross? Or have you added something to it? Christ plus my obedience. Christ plus my good behavior. To lose Christ alone by faith and depend on anything else for my standing with God is to lose the hope of the Gospel. That's Paul's concern. And he's even more concerned because he says these men have found a way to worm their way within the church. Second, he says they've, they've slipped in to spy out our freedom and bring us back into slavery under the law. Verse 4, yet because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us in to slavery. The words here um, picture someone slipping in through a side door under false pretenses. So, So they appear to be Christian. They talk about Jesus and faith. But as you listen very closely, you realize they they have something else in mind. It's not Christ that has them excited. It's not the gospel. It's this other thing. They haven't come to fellowship and celebrate about what Jesus has done, but to convince and persuade you of what you must do by putting your focus back on the law. Listen again to Paul's language. They've slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us in to slavery. Gospel freedom 
is one of Paul's main themes in Galatians. As we go through this, you're going to see that coming up again and again. How often do you think about that freedom? Galatians 5 verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The gospel brings freedom. What kind of freedom? Oh, the freedom to know your sins really are forgiven. The burden of your guilt really has been lifted by Christ. The curse of sin has been broken on the cross once and for all. And you have been accepted freely as a beloved child of God through faith alone. I mean, think of that. Galatians 4, 4-7, But when the fullness of time had come, when the Old Testament had done its work and prepared the way, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father! So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Not by works that you have done. Not by rules that you have kept. Not by observing this or that commandment. But by faith alone, redeemed through Christ's blood, counted righteous in God's sight through that faith. Someone shout Amen. That's Now, of course, you don't use that freedom as an excuse to plunge right back into sin. We'll come back to that too. No genuine child of God will ever do that. You love your father and so you want to obey your father. But it's a new kind of obedience. One that comes not by meticulous effort to keep the rules, but one that springs from a new heart of love that is filled with His grace and longs to walk by Him with the aid of the Holy Spirit. That's Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's the freedom of the new covenant. Listen, the gospel frees us to live for God. Legalism enslaves. Don't yield for a second to the legalism that enslaves that puts your nose in a rule book as if all the Bible is is a rule book and you must obey these rules or God's going to come down with the club and beat you. And if you don't don't perform well enough, well, you're in big trouble. Christ took that trouble in your place. And Christ gave Himself to you. I mean, isn't isn't this what Paul is saying? Don't yield for a second to the legalism that enslaves. Look at verse 5. He says, to them, to these enslavers, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so the truth of the Gospel might be preserved for you. So here are these men. These men are they're pressing Paul to have Titus and others like him circumcised and to keep the law with, with all of its commands. And Paul says, no way. Not For a second. Why not? So that the gospel might be preserved for you. So that the the message of the gospel will not be clouded. So that you and every generation following will see that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, not 
by works of the law. That's the gospel on which Paul has taken his stand. That's the gospel on which you, dear one, must take your stand. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was raised on the third day and now lives forever. When by faith I trust in Him, I am saved and given full assurance that I am God's child by grace. Never step back from that. Never add works to that. Never accept anyone's word that Christ is not enough. Do not let yourself be yoked again into the slavery of trying to please God with your own efforts through keeping the laws of the Old Testament. There's a lot of terms we're going to have to define. A lot of things we're going to have to think through in the coming weeks. But these men were focusing on the wrong covenant. They were trying to continue in an old covenant that has done its job rather than the new covenant which brings us fullness in Christ. Put your focus on Christ, dear church. That's what brings freedom and grace, which is our third thing this morning. That is the fellowship and the freedom of those who believe and proclaim the gospel of grace. Verses 6 through 10. I'm not going to read it. Yeah, let's, let's read it. We're running a little long, but you'll be okay. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, uh, verse 9, we'll skip the parenthesis, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Once the big three, Peter, James, and John, hear the gospel that Paul has preached and is preaching and realize it's the same gospel they're preaching, when they see how clearly God has been working through Paul just as He has been working through them, with the only difference being that while, while they're taking the gospel to the Jews, Paul is taking it to the Gentiles. When they see that, they throw up their arms and embrace Paul as a fellow apostle and preacher in Christ. And they warmly confirm that His gospel of grace is the gospel that saves. With that in mind, just notice what Paul tells us here. A couple of things here. Uh, Four quick things Paul tells us. First, notice, and this is important. Notice that the gospel is true because it's true. Not because of who endorses it. Notice how Paul reacts to their endorsement in verse 6. And these are the apostles. He says, and from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed to be influential, (laughs) almost sounds like he is dismissing them in some way. He's really not. His point is this. These men, no matter how great they are, As apostles, no matter how influential they have been up to this point, the gospel does not derive its truth from them. Jesus loves them and He's been using them, but Jesus doesn't need them. Peter could apostatize. John could lose his faith. But the gospel would still be the same and just as true without them. 
Listen, the truth of the gospel does not depend on who preaches it or who promotes it. It depends on the fact of an empty tomb and a risen Savior who is seated at the Father's right hand. Paul says, I am grateful for these men. I really am. But who they are makes no difference at all where the truth is concerned. Because God shows no partiality. Literally, God doesn't pay attention to a man's face. He doesn't need important people. He doesn't need celebrity endorsements. And we go nuts when some celebrity claims to follow Jesus. Like that's a big deal. Like it confirms it's true. Oh, so-and-so believe. Who cares? I mean, for their soul we care. But, but, but having them on the team adds nothing. He doesn't need celebrity endorsements. He doesn't need celebrity pastors or influential bloggers or authors to endorse Him. And by the way, neither do you. Can I just say this? Stop being so impressed with men. Stop being so impressed with people. Don't believe something just because somebody you like or admire said it. Even someone who is faithful, believe it because it's true. Believe it because it's God's Word. Believe it because God who said it cannot lie. Always go back to the Word. And so Paul says, hey, we had a good time. We were all in agreement. But they added nothing to me. They didn't correct me. They didn't say, well, you know, you need to change this or that about the message you preached. At the end of the day, we just all stood there together amazed at the kindness of God to us in Christ. Second, Paul tells us that God has in fact entrusted to people the power of the Gospel to save those who believe. I love Paul's language here in verses 7 and 8. He says, When they saw that I had been entrusted with the Gospel, just as Peter had been entrusted with the Gospel, but Peter to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles, but the key word there is, both have been entrusted with this Gospel. Do you understand? The Gospel is a sacred trust. Paul didn't come up with it. Peter did not invent it. Both received it from God's hand and were sent out to declare it with God's power. Do you understand? The Gospel is a sacred trust given to us as a church. It does not belong to us. If anything, we belong to it. It's not a message then that we get to change or alter to suit the occasion or or, or the changing times. We must receive it whole as it is and believe it completely for what it is and proclaim it faithfully. As Jude says, it is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Or Paul exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2 and says, What you've heard from me, this precious gospel, uh, entrust, same word, to faithful men who will be able to then pass it on to others. Church, Rockport, we have a sacred trust in the unchanging gospel that we must declare unchanged to this and to the next generation. I charge you to keep that. You who are younger, you young adults who have come up in this church or you've joined this church, you who are the 30 and below crowd, I charge you to hold fast to this gospel unchanged. 
and pass it on to our grandkids and the generation after that. If you don't, who's going to? We have a sacred trust in the unchanging gospel that we must declare. Why? Because it is the gospel alone that has power to save. Not the law, not obedience to rules or principles. The gospel alone has power to save. As Paul so famously boasts in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek third thing Paul says is that this gospel then has power to work in various contexts through different people to bring many to Christ. How amazing this is. We don't need a Jewish gospel for Jewish people and a Gentile gospel, a black gospel and a white gospel, a male gospel and a female gospel, an American gospel and a Mexican gospel. God sent one gospel. And He sends it out with Peter to the Jews. And He sends it out with Paul to the Gentiles. Different men with different ministries and differing gifts and different methods, but the same gospel of grace with power to save. So that guy over there may use a different method from you, but if his message that he preaches is the gospel of grace, that's your brother. I love this quote found in one of the commentaries this week. He says, A mark of Christian maturity is the ability to recognize that the same God is at work even in the most diverse ministries. The God who empowers the preaching of the Gospel is the same God who empowers the crisis counselor to lead a drug addict to find freedom in Christ. The God who empowers a missionary to take the Gospel to an unreached people group is the same God who empowers the widow to lovingly encourage her granddaughter to seek Christ the sooner we recognize the variety of ways that the the one God works, the greater our joy and wonder will be, as long as it is the Gospel. Which takes us into the last thing for this morning. And that is just to notice, Paul tells us about the fellowship we can enjoy when the Gospel is what binds us together. I love verse 9 and 10. Just picture this in your mind. So when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. What a scene. Can you see it? The big three. James, Peter, John embracing Paul and Barnabas and no doubt Titus too. I'm sure Titus got some love. Big hugs all around. Thumbs up. High fives. Slaps on the back and a warm handshake. Why? Because the Gospel had made them brothers. And they knew it. And being focused on that Gospel and the mission to take that Gospel to others had drawn them together. It had also made them generous. Verse 10, I'll just mention, he says, only they asked to remember the poor, the very thing is eager to do. They mean they're the poor in Jerusalem. Remember why Paul was there to begin with? There were starving brothers, Jewish brothers. And so these Jewish men say to Paul, take the gospel to the Gentiles, preach it to your, to your blue in the face, but don't forget about us down here. Don't forget your brothers here. Remember the offering. And if you know anything about Paul's ministry, he's going to keep taking that offering for, for another decade <laughs> and helping those who are suffering. 
But that's what the gospel does for us, church. It makes us brothers. It makes us generous. As we make the gospel and nothing else the center of our lives together. Nothing else. Not our eschatological views. Though they're important. We ought to search out the Scriptures and understand them and don't get weird. Not our political stands. Though they matter in a crazy world and it's going to be a rough year. But Christ alone. Christ by faith. Christ as Lord. Christ proclaimed and loved and worshipped. That's the message that saves. That's what binds us together and then sends us out with the good news of Jesus for a lost world. Not the rules we keep. Not the particular convictions that we have taken hold of personally. But the Christ we treasure. Dear one, hold fast to Him. Hold fast to Him and hold everything else loosely. Father, we're just beginning this journey we've reinitialized this morning through this letter that promotes the gospel of grace so clearly and boldly. Oh, Father, help us get it. Help us examine everything we're doing, everything we're promoting, everything we're loving, everything we're trusting in light of this message, grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Bring that persuasive power of Your Spirit even now to to men and women who are here and young people that they would trust nothing else but Christ. That they would see that Christ is enough and more than enough. And Christ can save the vilest sinner, the one who seems most distant from Him. Whenever He brings that heart to turn in repentance and trust the finished work of Christ, We ask these things in your magnificent name. Amen.